Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on Echelon, Paul ran into some unexpected issues while hunting for his murderer, and Aramis found out that her political commentary zine is being read not just all over Pan, but all over Maybar. And now, Chapter 2 of Echelon. so we decided to have this week's meeting now here aramis frowned and turned around to see phyllis smiling at her vicky was behind her expression and posture calm and ready aramis was barefoot in the center of a tatami mat training room it was in the fifth floor attic of a narrow building buried in the center of hempstock's downtown triangle the boring, drawn-out LWA class that met here every weekday evening had ended ten minutes ago. The couple Alephs, handful of vassals, and a dozen Pravids that also attended, plus the bald, retired Gammy that instructed the class, had left ten minutes ago. Instructor Miles often let Aramis stay late. She desperately wanted to remember a particular form, it was supposed to be one that helped her focus enough to draw vaporized water out of the air, but she didn't remember how it did that, and she couldn't remember the moves of the form anyway, and no other water pravied she knew had ever heard of drawing water from the air. She turned away from her two friends and began a form she knew well, doing smooth but hard hand motions as she moved up and down the mat. I'm working on stuff. I have to publish the new Echo tomorrow! We didn't finish our argument yesterday, and the only reason people read it is for those. Aramis's arms fell limp at her sides. She hadn't yet told them about what Paul had told her, about Echo being read in Prometheus. Fine, I'll talk while I practice. Phyllis removed her shoes and stepped onto the mat and sat cross-legged. Vicky did the same. From her messenger bag, Phyllis took out stacks of multicolored paper and a Mazai-based audio recorder, which was supposed to be more secure than a pen reader. Phyllis sighed dramatically as she turned it on, a little yellow light flickering on it in sync with the loudness of their voices. So, we need to talk about the pluses and minuses of staging revolutions. Aramis began another form. She delayed in replying as she considered. Would knowing that their work was being read illegally on another world change the way they composed it? Should it? Vicky probably already knew about this, considering the connections she had all over Prometheus, but she hadn't brought it up yet. The implications gave Aramis a shot of fear and excitement, but then that gave her a shot of shame. This scene was about insisting on personal justness, not gaining something for herself. When she finally did reply to Phyllis, her tone was more curt than she intended. The most successful one was America's, and you could still argue it was unnecessary. What? Phyllis laughed. That's insane. Where did you get that idea? From one of the entropy books. Aramis spun on one leg to execute a difficult 270-degree spin, ending with her standing on one leg. Have you actually read those books? Phyllis said, her tone more than a little accusatory. Or are you just referring to what teachers talked about in school? Aramis rolled her eyes. She wanted to say, no one reads them. But that wouldn't exactly help her argument. Have you seen how thick each of those volumes is? Phyllis made a show of trying to organize her mess of notes. We studied them in Earth history because we had to, but I could never make it through the readings. Those books are sanctimonious piles of nonsense said Vicky just before sipping from her thermos. This was usually how the discussions went. Aramis and Phyllis would argue, then Vicky would step in and undercut both of them. They were two long-winded know-it-alls, but Vicky had once been the dean of a college and a high-ranking city administrator. They'd been at this for a month or so, where the three of them would argue and later Phyllis would organize the details of said argument into a coherent composition to be published in Blue Echo. Phyllis had told Aramis that she'd wanted to have a political thought piece in her zine for years, but hadn't been able to come up with any ideas she'd liked. 
until she started having arguments about Aleph Dan with Aramis. Phyllis claimed 80% of the content of the article came from Aramis's ideas, but Aramis saw that as false humility on the part of Phyllis, and a willful ignorance over how much Vicky's sparse comments influenced their discussions. Recently, they'd received hundreds of letters from readers demanding that they argue about whether or not the people of Pan should start a revolution. Soma Dan's time in office was resulting in mass arrests, bounty hunters roaming the streets, and people seeing the chaos as opportunity to murder personal enemies, and rumors kept circulating that more reforms were on their way. The Pan sub-assembly voted on her seat every eight years and on three others in the 20-member body that ruled all worlds in Maybar. And that sub-assembly was voted in by the Aleph's of Pan, which were appointed by a body separate from the sub-assembly, but guided by it. The short of it was that the common population of Pan had absolutely no say in who ruled them, which is why Aramis, Phyllis, and Vicky were now talking about revolutions and the dense collection of tomes they were referring to, the entropy of superpowers, had very harsh things to say about both the United States and their original ruler, Britain. At least, that's what Aramis remembered from her classes on those books. Vicky reveled in the silent attention that her comment had earned from the two others before she continued. I have read them. All the way through. All eight volumes. Eight! Phyllis's eyes opened wide. I thought there were only five. Vicky shook her head. I've taught classes on them. They always fill up with students right away. It's all anarchist rambling and libertarian fantasy. Most of the statements they make are technically true, but none of the conclusions they come up with are of any use. It makes for great classroom discussion, though. Like the one we're supposed to be having right now. Phyllis laughed at her own comment. Aramis thought about this as she finished the form she was doing. She tried to pick another one to do, but was distracted. Okay, so I guess I'll try to make my point aside from what I remember Entropy saying about America. They should have stuck to diplomatic action. They could have just kept sending representatives to England to demand the accountability they needed. I mean, eventually Canada became pretty much the same as America, and it never rebelled. And eventually Britain became just as democratic as America. Phyllis shrugged. Yeah, but without the influence of America's example, who's to say that would have ever happened? It could have just remained a class-based aristocracy-ruled empire. It's unfair to judge America for what they did that way. They didn't know Britain would change. One can make the argument, Vicky interjected, that Britain did not truly change until the combined costs of World War I and II bankrupted their empire. Yes, Phyllis gestured at Vicky, as if what Vicky had just said validated her argument. America had a right to demand independence. I don't know, Irma said, her back to them and her eyes glazing unfocused through the dirty windows facing the lights of downtown. I just don't think a war was necessary. I think people get angry and bitter and don't think through all of the options. I mean... Phyllis paused, looking at the ceiling. Your argument is a lot stronger if you talk about anybody else. The Marxist revolution in Russia. Leninist Marxist. Vicky mumbled. The something revolution in France. Aramis shook her head. France had something like a dozen different ones, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Phyllis gestured at Aramis. Those were all bloody and terrible and didn't make anything better. Not right away, anyway. So they kind of work for your point. A lot better than America's. Aramis turned to a wall covered in wooden and metal staffs. She folded her arms. So does that mean you have to have a clear democratic plan in place ahead of time? I don't know. I'm just saying if you want to make a point that revolutions are a bad idea, don't mention the one that actually worked. But that's not how you have to do it, Aramis grumbled. I can't leave out the one case where I'm wrong. That just makes me look lazy. I guess I could mention it and say it's the exception that proves the rule. But that always feels like a cop-out. Aramis actually looked at Phyllis. They were both blank-faced. 
Finally, Phyllis mumbled and... Oh. They both looked at Vicky as if she was the parent who could clear up the confusion. She squinted. I don't think that argument would work in this place. America sets too strong a precedent to be a mere exception. Aramis sighed and relaxed her arms. She started doing a very basic form just so she could keep moving. She felt like she was definitely losing this argument. It just doesn't feel justified. I know that sounds like I'm making a pacifist stance, but not really. There are times when war is justified. If you have to clean up body parts of children from a shelled city, that's justification for war. But bad laws, political injustice, abuse of power, I don't think they're justifications for war, not by themselves. Don't forget, Vicky said, that Britain laid the groundwork for America to get there with many of its reforms. The idea of due process in criminal prosecution is an important turning point. Phyllis laughed. That sounds like a rabbit hole leading to another endless argument. However, using the illustration of prosecution, what you're saying, Aramis, sounds like some sort of punishment fits the crime stance, which I think is nonsense. I'm not... Aramis paused in the middle of a kick. How is it nonsense? I think there's a line. Phyllis pantomimed a literal line in front of her. Somewhere between merely having bad laws and full-on institutional slavery. And once you cross that line, the common people initiating a war is justified. You and I just disagree about where that line is. Clearly, you draw it somewhere over with cleaning up the remains of children, which is pretty disturbing and gross. I kind of wonder why that was your go-to example. Aramis felt a chill. Her memories of her early 20s were foggy, even if they were only 10 years ago. She couldn't remember if she had helped with such a horrifying duty, or if she'd merely heard a lot of stories from others who had. She knew that she had at least been near battlefields. She didn't know if it was as a soldier or as something else. She joined her friends, sitting in silence. Eventually, a thought came to her. It has to be a result of weighed consequences. What are the consequences of doing nothing versus the consequences of fighting? If you do nothing and people are abused and harassed, is that worse than fighting? If you fight, People are abused and harassed and killed. Vicky chimed in. Old men spend the lives of the young on their convictions. Hermes nodded. I don't want to make that choice. We're drifting into utilitarianism, which could be problematic. Phyllis frowned at Aramis. You sound like you're worried you might have to make a choice like that, or that you already have before. I know you said you used to be in the military. Hermes nodded again. I think I was. Either way, I don't want to ever be the one who has to decide if a war happens. Phyllis considered this. Most people think a war is about to start. Aramis raised her voice slightly. Most people are stupid. They don't think about the millions that would die. Even if they do, they don't think those numbers would affect them. Just a death tally printed in a zine. Phyllis rolled her eyes. It probably wouldn't be millions. You don't know that. Both turned to Vicky. Her expression was dead serious. Well, I mean... Phyllis was upset. I think we're right on the line. Things are bad and getting worse. Aramis shook her head. I just wish I could talk to Aleph Dan. Phyllis's forehead did this thing where it tensed and then relaxed. Mostly. A crease remained over her left eye. Aramis always knew to watch out when that crease didn't go away. Maybe she knows how destructive her methods are. She just doesn't care. Have you thought about whether or not she deserves to have someone change her mind? A surge of anger shot through Aramis. She didn't understand it, but it made her start shaking. She wanted to scream at Phyllis. Instead, she clenched her hands into fists and stood up. That is not how it works. Even with keeping herself from yelling, it seemed that Phyllis understood how angry Aramis was. She remained silent, waiting for Aramis to continue. And Aramis did continue, her voice low. 
a fool oppresses, protects his supporters, and enrages those he oppresses. Those rise up, kill him, and then oppress his supporters. The cycle just starts over and over again, because what do they know about fixing problems? Violence and anger. Idiots try to argue the end justifies the means. That's the stupidest thing anyone's ever said. Vicky shrugged. A better saying is, the means define the end. Aramis nodded as if she'd heard the quote before, even though she hadn't. But she was lost in the moment. It's forgiveness. I don't care how stupid it sounds or how counterintuitive it is. You must be just in everything you do from start to finish in peace or war or revolution. And that requires forgiveness. Phyllis was looking at the ceiling. Because everybody wants to be treated fairly, so everybody wants everyone else to be just to them. Yes. Aramis let the word out in an exhausted sigh. Phyllis gave her one of her narrow-eyed stares. That crease above her left eye remained. I get what you're saying. I still think we need violent, pragmatic people to protect idealistic people like you, even if you don't like it. I don't agree with that. Vicky laughed. You kids. Aramis felt herself calming, even though she felt insulted by the comment. She picked a random form, one meant to help her focus on controlling water from a long distance away, and moved into the ready stance so she could practice and prepare herself as they moved on to the next argument. Energy comes from the center. It's the same with moving your body as with manipulating Kesho. Soma's hair was saturated with sweat as she punched the air behind the tiny workout studio in Abedston. Whenever Soma showed up, which was not often enough, two or three times a month, Anna put her through rigorous stretching and warm-ups, then practiced basic, but exhausting, punching and kicking, carefully critiquing something new each time. Twist the hip. Extend more fully. Wait until the foot lands to snap the punch. Then over and over again. Then, when she was exhausted and felt limp and useless, she and Anna would go out to the backyard of the studio. That's where they were right now, surrounded by moss and lichen-covered cedar fencing. Someone was standing in front of a bowl with a handful of burning twigs in it thrusting open palms forward toward them. Not thrusting her palms into the fire, but stopping half a meter before them. Your energy starts from your hips, your center. Again, Soma threw another palm heel strike forward. The fire whooshed away from her slightly, but it could just be a random breeze. It goes up your spine, transfers to your shoulders, then your arm, then your hand. Another palm strike. The fire in front of her only shuddered this time. For the fire, the energy starts from its center of mass. The flames are thickest down by the twigs. As you move them, or grow them, that movement flows from its center. Again, Soma hesitated, then concentrated on the base of the flames. She struck at the air in front of her again, and the fire not only whooshed forward again, but grew in size for a moment. Good! Again. Soma did it again, but it didn't get as good a result this time. But that was how it went. One after the other. A little better this time. A little worse the next. Back and forth. Uh, Aleph Dan? Both Soma and Anna turned around. Hewn was standing in the doorway leading back to the studio, looking very worried. Soma walked over to him, leaving the teacher alone by the fire. What is it? Hewn looked at his feet and spoke barely loud enough for her to hear. Bad news. At least two Kaze members have leaked your phase two plan. I'm worried they may have also told someone about you letting Nathan leave. And they may still tell if they haven't yet. Soma drew in a long breath. After only one day? Hugh nodded. Soma looked over at Anna, who was a minor lieutenant in the Kaze cult. A sort of standby trainer. Though most Kaze folks said they were quote-unquote standby, 
that was the trade-off for aligning with a group that was highly mobile and individualistic. Their ability to execute instructions quickly with little chance of being traced back to any leader was tempered by an inherent fickleness and reluctance to follow instructions precisely. Maybe I shouldn't have hired a libertarian militia as my primary guard force. How do you know they leaked my plan? Hune shrugged and pulled a folded note out of a pocket. Oh, this. It's a letter from Hemstock's mayor. He's not happy. Soma took the rough, heavy paper. Well, at least he was smart enough to send a hard copy. Hune shrugged. He's threatening to tell the assembly, but he's not stupid enough to get their attention prematurely. Soma slapped the paper against her hand rhythmically, chewing on her lower lip. Then should we just ignore him? No, we need a show of strength. Mostly to make sure the Kaze cult stays in line. They respect you because you act boldly. Soma sighed. What are the numbers like right now? I thought we had at least a couple dozen immortals that had joined us. How many Kaze folk do we have on hand? About 30? Hyun shook his head. We have that many at the house, yes. But remember, there are thousands all over Pan, and they are informally allied with you. Soma stuffed the letter into the front fold of her workout uniform. She'd read it in detail later. Get the gallery ready. We'll leave tonight. So, now that you've told him, can you tell me? Susie asked as Paul joined her outside the police station. They walked together down the street in the early morning sunlight. It was his first time getting out of the station since arriving last night. He wasn't really in the mood to have this conversation, but he did owe it to her. She'd stayed late last night, waiting for him to finish talking with the officer then spending a few minutes with him in his holding cell before he'd started to fall asleep sitting up. He looked at his feet as they headed down the sidewalk in the general direction of her parents' house. They'd need to take a shuttle there, but right now walking felt good. I have to tell you a bunch of things that you don't believe in. She studied his face, silent as they took step after step. Finally, she sighed and looked ahead. Well, you were dead. They burned your body and built a little sculpture on the hill with the ash. I think I can handle some other reality-crushing details. Paul snorted. Oh man, you say that now. Susie looked at him and narrowed her eyes, her mouth holding a crooked grin. What's the absolutely most strange thing that you're afraid of telling me? Paul looked up at the sky. I lied to a man wearing a magic monocle who was covered in tattoos that gave him superpowers, who killed his girlfriend's husband, which I knew because I can smell it when people are murderers. Hmm. What? Susie was still frowning. What did you lie to this person about? I told him that I'm an Aleph. Susie shook her head. I always thought Pan might exist. Maybe another planet where the Toss settled a second group of people. I don't know. It's a lot. I probably would have lost my faith if it hadn't been for Aramis. Was that a friend you met over there? Paul nodded, then frowned, then realized that Aramis was a boy's name. He could potentially talk about her and pretend he hadn't spent most of his time around another woman, but he'd probably end up getting in trouble if he did that. Yeah, she was like a big sister over there. She, it was like any question you might have about Seven or the Remnants. She had something super smart to say, even if she didn't have a clear answer. Susie folded her arms, rubbing her shoulder. She turned a corner to lead them down a different street. You probably didn't think you'd be able to make it back. I didn't give up on it. I worked my butt off to get back. For you, really. He said so matter-of-factly that it wasn't until after that he realized it probably sounded romantic. The reason he didn't realize it was romantic right away was because he was thinking about how much harder Aramis had worked to get him here than he had. Either way, Susie reached over and took his hand, squeezing it and leaning up against him as they continued walking. 
He squeezed back but felt embarrassed. He thought trying to convince her of the existence of pravies and vassals and aleps and magic would be exhausting, possibly involving a lot of yelling. However, it turned out what he didn't want to talk about was Aramis. I know it's a lot, Susie sighed. You don't have to talk about all of it right now. Well, at least I think I should tell you about the stuff that weird cop was asking me about last night. She looked up at him. Are you allowed to talk about it? I don't care. Paul squinted an eye and scratched his shoulder. He offered me a job. A job? As a police officer? Paul laughed. Sort of. You know, I was really worried you'd take all the crazy magic stuff badly. I wasn't sure what you would say. Susie stopped and turned to face him. They were still mostly in downtown. There weren't a lot of people walking around the streets right now, but Paul still felt awkward stopping in the middle of the sidewalk. She wasn't bothered at all. Paul, I can handle it. I thought I lost you. I don't care about the details. You obviously didn't lose your faith after you experienced it all firsthand. I trust you. Just tell me. Paul nodded. He reported what happened last night to his boss. Who talked to his boss? Anyway, I went through a lot of bosses. They found out I was a guy who pretended to be an Aleph. And wait, Susie frowned. They found out you lied to that guy who was a murderer, right? Yeah. And they offered you a job? He nodded and started walking again. If I can find my murderer and catch him, they'll give me the job. If I refuse or fail, they'll throw me in some place called Stove. Susie's forehead filled with wrinkles as she stared straight ahead with her mouth open. That's terrible. Paul shrugged. Nah, it's fine. I'll catch him. But he murdered you. He's a serial killer. He's killed something like nine people. They're not going to help you at all? All I really needed was an idea of where to start looking. And they gave me some information that could help. No, I mean, like help you by watching your back or training you or something. They offered me a gun, but I don't want one. Why? He beats his victims to death with his bare hands. Paul looked down at his own large hands. I don't think that will be a problem. Hey guys. Oh, and just in case you were worried, I did get my ballot in, and I didn't wait until the very last minute, at least, but whatever. It's done. Oh, and a fun thing I can let you know about, the trailer for the stop-motion movie I worked on last year is out. It will be on Netflix. It's from the guys that made killer clowns from outer space back in the 80s, and it's called Alien Xmas. It's pretty good, largely because Jon Favreau was involved with the project. I got to help make some of the props you'll see in it. The movie will be out November 20th. Anyway, Echelon is written and produced by me, Andy Wright. All the music is from the album Into the Dark by the band The Restitution. You can follow me online at A. William Wright. The show is hosted by the folks at Anchor.fm. And Chapter 3 will be posting November 16th. Now... Let's get back to the show. Susie's mom laughed. What do you mean you'll be working for the assembly? Susie's dad, sitting in a corner reading something on his pen reader, snorted. Paul tried to focus on chewing the sandwich and not getting it stuck to the roof of his mouth. They didn't have cheap white bread and cheap manufactured cheese and cheap deli meat like this in pan, so he'd forgotten how boring food could taste. Not that all food in Prometheus was gross, just the kind of food that Susie's family ate at home. Still, it was better than jail food. Paul swallowed. It's not them directly. They report to the assembly. Susie's mom set out drinks on the table. Well, whatever it is, it has to be a better career track than the one you had before, though it would make me uncomfortable working for people who believe in demigods and a pantheon of false gods. Paul and Susie exchanged a knowing glance. It was odd. 
Paul had expected this kind of hard-headedness from Susie, but now she was his ally. Susie's eyes got big as she watched his face, her mouth smiling slightly. What? Paul gave her a big nervous smile, then turned to her mom. Actually, arresting demigods will be my job. Susie's mom stopped moving. I thought you'd said you'd be a deputy in some police force. Paul took another big bite of his sandwich and nodded. A police force that goes after criminal alephs. Both Susie's mom and dad were now staring at him. Her dad put his pen reader down and cleared his throat. Is this some kind of prank, son? Paul shook his head, his face blank. I know we all grew up knowing the alephs don't exist. That the managers are just myth. But just because I know they exist, doesn't mean I've lost my faith. All these people are just people. Well, maybe not the managers, but they're not all-powerful, and they haven't breathed anything into existence. Anything they've created, they've made with stuff that was already there, using intelligence that was given to them. Even if the managers are artificial creatures, they're just copies of what the name made. Dead silence. Susie stared at her glass of orange juice while her parents glanced at each other, then at whatever wall was in each other's line of sight. Paul silently thanked Aramis for using those same arguments against him months ago. Finally, after what felt like forever, Susie's mom asked, Why you? I'm very strong. And I can, uh, I have special abilities. It's hard to explain. Susie's dad narrowed his eyes. Well, how strong? Paul looked around and frowned. He was trying to decide if he should bend some metal or break something, but he didn't want to ruin any of their stuff just to show off. He looked outside at their backyard, seeing their small kidney pool. They definitely wouldn't appreciate him breaking the pool or snapping any of the trees out there in half. Finding some way to show superhuman strength shouldn't be this difficult. Finally, Susie pointed to a large, hardwood chifferobe standing in the corner. Pick that up. Paul remembered helping moving that thing in. It had taken three people, and they'd really needed four. And that was when it was empty. Uh, Does it have anything in it that will break? Susie's mom shook her head. Just books and afghans and pillows. Paul walked over to the thing. It was taller than him and 50% wider. He grabbed it from either side and lifted up and drove the little decorative pillar on one of the corners right into the ceiling. Grumbling, he set it back down. Uh, sorry about that. Susie's dad stuck out his lower lip. Well, that is impressive, but it doesn't really explain why you're becoming some sort of vampire slayer. <laughs> vampires. Paul snorted as he walked back to the table. At least I haven't run into any of those yet. Look, anything I do is going to look like I either worked out or it will... Look like a parlor trick. I could bend a fire poker into a knot. I, I don't think that'll convince you. All that matters is that tonight, I'm going to be dropped off where my murderer is. I'm going to catch him, and they're going to send me off to a six-month school to become a deputy auditor. People usually call them Masayoshigamis, or just Gami. Susie's dad pointed at him. Doesn't Gami mean God in Japanese? Paul shrugged as he sat back down beside Susie. Uh, I don't know. Susie's mom looked very upset by that. She went to the sink and appeared to be washing dishes that were already clean. Susie's dad appeared to be more curious now and less worried. Why do you need six months of training if you're already strong and have, as you say, special abilities? Because it's like any job. I have to learn procedures, laws, all that stuff. I told you, these are people, not gods or demons. They have to learn things just like everybody else. His eyebrows went up. Well, you, you know, get new abilities from this training? This was one thing that Paul felt a little queasy about. Because it felt the most unnerving when he had been told about it. Yes. I'll be able to travel between different worlds whenever I want to. It's just crazy. Susie's mom set a stack of dishes down on the counter. Susie, are you okay with this? You were just starting to get over Paul being dead. Now he's back, 
His head is full of crazy ideas. Now he's going off to become a mercenary for, for some sort of organization. Do you want to go through what happened all over again? Susie looked at Paul, who still had the same blank expression he'd had through most of this discussion. She drew in a long breath through her nose. I just want to take it one day at a time, okay? Paul's back, and I'm happy, and I trust him. Even if he's going to go confront the person that supposedly murdered him, and then get whisked away to some Soldier of Fortune training camp? It's not a... Paul began, but a look from Susie silenced him. Susie nodded to her mother and said firmly, Yes. Her mother sighed and paced around the kitchen with her eyes on the floor. You say that now. Soma, limbs feeling like achy wet noodles, yawned as she walked east and uphill toward where the Galleria was parked. It was a long walk because she wanted it out of view so few people would know when she was in town. So she usually left the airboat in an isolated clearing a little ways from one of Abinson's neighborhoods called New Ladder. She needed to go to training sessions with Anna more often. As she walked, she turned to Hune beside her. I cannot keep going only a couple times a month. Hune shrugged a kind smile on his face. Well, you're very handy with those pistols. In fact, I have an idea. Oh? He nodded. I know someone who could improve them so they'd work better for you. Soma nodded. Then take one of them at a time, so I still have one on me while you're having the other upgraded. Hewn smiled. Good idea. Soma looked out ahead on the path, a narrow dirt line surrounded by thousands of shades of green. One of the reasons she liked coming down here to work out was so she could take these long walks. But then the path suddenly opened up. Dirt and grass and bushes and trees had been pushed back to make a wide, long clearing that generally moved in the direction of her house. She stopped. She looked uphill and saw various Animeca robots that were designed for clearing out foliage. Fat-legged, stubby-torsoed monsters of metal with hands specially designed for leveling dirt and cutting trees and digging up stumps. They were all dormant right now. She looked downhill and saw more robots, some similar in design, some much more specialized. The largest and noisiest cluster of them were laying down precast concrete blocks onto a level path. Train tracks, laid in four lines two for going uphill, two for going downhill. They were being placed gingerly by a long-armed Animeca with huge feet and a tiny head that was just a cluster of cameras. A little further down the hill, a wall of robotic arms seemed to be constructing an entire building, one that looked similar to a line of other buildings running even further down the hill. What is going on? Soma finally said. Hune gestured at the scene. I think they're building a new neighborhood, one closer to us. Why? How many people are you employing at the house right now? Soma tried to remember the exact number. In the last few weeks, ever since she figured out how to harvest the ink from her pen, she'd been doing a lot of hiring. About 350. Well, Hune said, smiling with his back to the construction. You've created a need for more infrastructure. Faster ways to commute. Closer options of food, closer lodging. You've been breathing new life into the city without even realizing it. Fascinating. I wanted to be somewhat isolated, but I guess that wasn't really an option. Nope. You've been doing a lot of good things, even in the little things. Hune's smile was warm, but Soma didn't really believe him. Well, she did but she did not at all think any of this mattered in the scope of everything she was working on. It was nice to know that some people were getting work, but if she couldn't succeed in what she was doing, none of it mattered. If the assembly or somebody else killed her, all this new infrastructure would be useless. Failed investments. Investments in her. Infrastructure to be sustained by her DA ink from her pen. Hopes and dreams hanging on her success. 
Yes, it felt nice to hear Hewn saying these kind things, but in reality, it all just added to the weight on her shoulders. You shouldn't be worried either. Aramis's forehead stung as she took the notes from Vicky and kept talking. Do you know how often we'd hear rumors in the commune? The Social Services Guild was going to dump all their troublemakers on us. The Alephs were going to send gamis to enforce martial law at banks because, I don't know, reports of visiting teenagers getting raped. Every week there was some terrible thing that everybody would be worried about. It almost never happened. Vicky still had that confident, arrogant grin on her face as they continued the walk from Gail's shop, where Aramis had been working, to the Tungsten District. I'm pretty sure this one is real. Well, then good. People should stop watching those things anyway. The new rumor that Dan was going to crack down on snuff porn and gladiator shows in the same way that she had been cracking down on soul space murder and theft by arresting anyone her research said was connected. And connected was such a wonderfully vague term. They were headed to Jack and Ben's again, the meeting room in the back having become a sort of secret office, if it could even be called that. Vicky insisted that Echelon become more than just a weekly article in a zine, but it wasn't going to be anything more than that until Aramis, Vicky, and Phyllis could agree on what they were going to do. They could barely agree on whether they were starting a movement, a group, or a new political party. Hence, the fifth series of notes that Aramis had just received for what could loosely be called a group constitution. Aramis looked over the notes. Vicky hadn't made as many markings through this iteration, but the spot Aramis's eyes settled on and she frowned at was where Vicky had crossed out a few words and written down alternatives. Aramis had written types of laws and below it had three bullet points, justice, righteousness, and cooperation. Vicky had crossed out justice and written criminal, crossed out righteousness and written moral, and crossed out cooperation and written civil. Aramis didn't necessarily disagree with the revisions, but didn't understand why Vicky couldn't instead write above the words, this might work better, instead of just crossing the word out. Vicky watched her while Aramis pretended she didn't notice she was watching her. They rounded a corner and saw the unlit light bulbs dangling from an archway marking the Tungsten District. In an hour or so, it would be dark enough and they'd come on, but right now they were just dull in the overcast afternoon. Aramis's pocket had that unnerving scratching feeling that meant Paul was riding on his ash clam half. She reached in for her half and had an excuse to completely ignore Vicky for a moment. She folded up the notes and put them in another pocket and read Paul's message while trying to find her pencil. So I have two choices, and both suck. I agree to work for the assembly and do their dirty work and spend months away from Susie doing training. Or I run away and become a fugitive and never see Susie again. She erased his writing and wrote back, You could be a positive influence in an otherwise dark place if you take the job, though. There was a long pause. Aramis saw the street coming up where Jack and Ben's was. Finally, her writing was erased and Paul wrote out, I guess. In the corner of Aramis's vision, she saw Vicky shake her head. It's not going to work. Aramis put the shell away. What, our constitution? No, this second crackdown of Dan's, or this rumor as you call it, to force morality on everyone like this will fail. Aramis frowned. That was a gross oversimplification, and she did not agree that it was an issue regulated to just morality. Well, there are a lot of people who go to partnered theaters and use partnered potions. I will admit that. It would be a much bigger operation than just the soul space stuff. Vicky's eyebrows went up. If Dan is going to use the same tactics with these folks that she's using with the soul offenders, Pan is going to fall apart. Aramis looked up at the overcast sky. In her mind, 
the gladiatorial and violent pornographic entertainment from Tanzveni was just another problem everybody knew about but didn't do anything about. Just like dealing in murdered soul space, the buying of partnered potions, or going to partnered theaters to watch these particular performances was very illegal. Even listening to the radio versions of these shows was illegal. But most people in Pan participated at least a little. So this was just another thing where Aramis felt like she was an outsider for how she felt about it. Aramis turned one eye toward Vicky. There are bounty hunters and Kaze members and cops running around like crazy trying to arrest soul offenders. And there are only a few thousand of those tops. With this Taintsveni stuff, we're talking millions. That's why I think it's a rumor, because there's no way she could move on any of that anytime soon. She doesn't seem that stupid. Vicky shrugged. If she's smart, she'll just fine the customers and focus on shutting down potion dealers and illegal theaters. But she can't do anything about Taintsveni itself, not directly. Aramis saw Jack and Ben's coming up, and a moment later both of them slowed, but didn't quite stop, as they got about ten paces from the front door. There were two large men in suits by the door, one on either side, looking bored. Aramis could just barely see tattoos on the wrists of one of them. Well, that's weird. Vicky nodded. The two of them walked up to the door, and the man with tattoos on his wrists held up a hand to block them. He looked down at them, that bored but professional expression unbroken. You have a visitor inside. Booth in the corner. Vicky and Aramis looked at each other and nodded to the man. He put his arms down and resumed looking out over the street. Vicky followed Aramis in. The entire dining room was empty except for the booth in the back corner. There was a man sitting there by himself, drinking a tall glass of dark beer. He had a massive gray beard. They walked over. The man smiled. Sorry for the theatrics. Don't worry. I rented out the place from the owner. I wanted to talk to you in person. Have a seat. Vicky sat down first, then Aramis, the two of them sitting across from the man. He held out his hand to Aramis. Robert Jin. Aramis took it. Aramis Ferry. Vicky held out her hand to Mr. Jin, who took it with a big smile. He said, I know who you are. Vicky's dignity didn't fade a bit. Victoria Akmatova. Mr. Jin nodded. The pleasure of this meeting is all mine. So, this is all odd and mysterious, so I'll get to the point so you can relax. You've got that look in your eye that you're worried I'm going to give you some sort of ultimatum. Vicky raised an eyebrow. Aren't you? Mr. Jin frowned. No, I'm here to talk to you about your movement, about backing you. Movement's a strong word. Aramis gripped the pocket that held the notes. And who are you really? Are you with the assembly? Jin broke into a bellowing, full-body laugh at hearing that. Oh, that's funny. No, not at all. I'm the leader of the Soyu cult. Oh, said both Aramis and Vicky at the same time. Then just Aramis said under her breath, Oh, this could be bad. Jin nodded at them. After you ran into Mr. Sanchez near the Narthex, he and I agreed we should keep an eye on you. I wanted to watch from a distance for a while and see what you came up with, but too many people are talking. You guys need protection. Aramis's eyes narrowed. She focused on asking the next question with as calm and non-suspicious a tone as possible. What kind of protection? The regular kind. The kind you need when the cults are expanding and picking sides. You're picking sides in a very peculiar way. So you'll make people angry. We know that. Vicky folded her arms. Are you talking about sponsoring us? Uh, not yet. Aramis didn't feel good about this. She looked at Vicky's calm, critical face. She looked at Jin's relaxed, confident face. It was like she was a child sitting in on a meeting the parents were having, except that she knew this was her deal. All of this was happening because of her. Wait, can we, can we stop everything? Jin and Vicky looked at her. She held up her hands. We have nothing. There isn't anything to protect. 
We haven't had any meetings other than just the three of us arguing about what Phyllis should write about each week. We don't have any rosters. We've had some people saying they want change. We barely have a constitution put together. She pulled the notes out of her pocket and held them up. Jin's eyebrows went up and he pointed at the mashed up papers. Is that it? Aramis let her hand fall to the table with a thud. It's not ready. I'm not the writer. I just throw out ideas. Can I? Jin gestured at her hand. Aramis looked at her hand, at the pieces of paper. Finally, she held it out to Jin. He took it and straightened out the paper and read with his bushy eyebrows scrunched down in concentration. The room was dead quiet as he read, momentarily interrupted by the crinkling of the paper as he adjusted his hands. By the time he was done with the first page, though, his expression had changed. He looked upset, almost sad. The dead air of the restaurant filled with the crinkling of him switching from the first sheet to the second. When he finally set both down on the table in front of him, his eyes were red. Aramis was barely breathing, trying to figure out why Jin looked so upset. Were the notes that bad? Were her ideas that terrible? The assembly will not like this. Aramis looked at Vicky, but she was still staring Jin down. Same expression as before. Aramis opened her mouth, but it was a second before she finally said, There should not be an assembly, but we need them at least for now. Jin nodded. I was planning on convincing you to be absorbed into Soyu eventually, but now I'm, I'm not going to do that. I don't know if we would have agreed to that anyway. Jin shrugged. No, I want you to convince me. I read your notes. They're disturbing and brilliant. But I want to hear you say it to me. Aramis drummed shaking fingers on the table. Uh, okay. She writes sermons in her spare time. Vicky said it to Jin with a smile. Doesn't have anyone to give them to yet. Jin didn't smile back. His eyes were still a little glazed and red. Turn these notes into a sermon. Aramis's fingers recoiled into fists. I don't have enough to write, like, an actual sermon. The only, like, solution I have is that the Alephs need to be stripped of the powers they have, eventually. We need to have elected leadership at the top. No more people that are just gods with unilateral power. If world leaders want to call themselves Alephs, that's fine. But no more Aleph pens... No more control over reality. No more arbitrary judging of the dead. But all that isn't going to happen by us rising up against them and overthrowing them. We can't just kill them and then change the rules. We'd just take the power for ourselves and we'd think that we can do a better job. Which is what Detective Dan is doing. Jin pointed skyward as he said it. Aramis nodded. It's exactly what she's doing. She has no experience handling the power... She's blindly idealistic and impulsive. The side effects of all her improvements are worse than the things she's trying to fix. And because of her right now, we have a rare opportunity to convince people of this very problem. You want, Jin began, to convince people to rally together, to demand the assembly turn in their power, but to keep their administrative positions for now. Correct? It's the only way I can see to prevent a war. Jin snorted, his eyebrows going up. Or start one. The three of them were like statues in the silence. Jin stared off at the wall, still looking upset. At that moment, Aramis felt her pocket scratching. She looked at Jin, who was gazing off into nothing, then reached into her pocket and pulled out the ash clam. Jin absently turned his eyes to see what she was doing, but didn't really look interested. Aramis looked down at Paul's new note. I could try and burn it all down from the inside. Aramis frowned. It took her a second to remember that Paul was talking about his job offer from the assembly. She wasn't sure if he was joking, half-joking, or being serious, but she'd ask him about that later. She'd try to convince Paul to not be an agent of chaos, when at the same time, she was preparing to directly cause the assembly trouble. 
She stuffed the clam half back in her pocket. Jin set the notes down on the table, gesturing at the door, and looked Aramis in the eye. Walk me to the door? The two of them got up and sauntered across the room. Vicky didn't seem upset by being left out at all. Jin leaned in close to Aramis and spoke in a low voice. You're a follower of Seven, aren't you? Aramis nodded. He put his hands behind his back. I can see it in your constitution. Your language about avoiding violence and condemning violent revolution. Well, Shimon Petra's first letter in the remnants is pretty explicitly against all that. They reached the door and Jin stood with his back to it and stuffed his hands in his pockets. Things are getting bad. The cities have already picked sides. Some of the leaders love Detective Dan. Most hate her, but she has the support of a lot of the cults and has Kaze in her pocket. If this new rumor is true, there will probably be a civil war soon. I have to tell you that Soyu is going to be against Dan. Well, I figured that. I know that could be a problem for you. Aramis frowned. Because if you follow Seven, well, that makes you pretty against Hinsveni's products. Aramis looked to the side. Well, yeah, but I'm also against plunging the world into chaos. Jin's eyebrows shot up. That's going to happen. If you try to help her, chaos. If you try and stop her, chaos. Aramis looked out the window at the cloudy, darkening sky. She wasn't sure why, but she didn't think Jin was right. Maybe she was stupid and idealistic, but she wasn't ready to accept an inevitable war. Not yet. She looked at Jin, at his eyes, which were no longer glazed but still had puffy redness. She still had no idea what was wrong. He had spoken as if impressed overall by the notes. Why do you look so upset? Jin stared off and shrugged. It bothers me. You're saying things that people need to hear, but you're sitting in this restaurant scribbling notes, thinking you're not ready. But I'm not ready. Jin shook his head. You need to stop that. Aramis resisted her instinct to continue to argue the case of her inadequacy. Maybe there was another way to look at this. What if I could convince people to not go to war over this? Aramis held up a finger. I know people are angry, but you think I'm ready now, and I made you really upset for some reason. So, if I could get to the point where I think I'm ready, maybe I could make everybody upset. His face made a motion of laughter, but made no sound. Well, that is a compelling argument. And I do have a favor I could call in. What kind of favor? His eyes scanned across the restaurant and turned toward the gray sky outside. Something that could put you in front of everyone. And I mean everyone, including Dan. Aramis leaned back, her stomach clenching up into a tiny ball in her gut. But Jin just leaned forward to close the distance she just made. How long do you think it will take you to compose your sermon? My, wait, what are you saying? I'm saying... I may have a way to broadcast your expose, your ultimatum, your magnum opus. How long would it take you to put it together? Aramis stared at her shoes. She never would have imagined this might be an option. She'd thought that maybe she could seek out an appointment with Aleph Dan, or she could write her a letter. She'd never thought she'd have the opportunity to broadcast something, to have everyone hear her voice. Uh, I'd probably have both sides of the issue hating me. Jin shrugged. Probably, but that's often how you know you're in the right. Not always. He smiled. Apprehensive? I'm not worried about everyone hating me. I, I can probably have it ready in a couple weeks, but... A cold chill came over her. It wasn't just fear. Oh no. Jin frowned. What's wrong? Aramis looked down at her hands, then at the pocket holding the ash clam, the clam that was not her only obnoxious connection to the big dope who'd left her for Prometheus. That stupid bond I have with Paul. One of my conditions is I can't put myself in a situation, well, a situation like this. Oh. Jin's forehead filled with wrinkles. So that means, if you try and agree, 
you'll get deathly ill until you change your mind, and if you refuse, you'll get a wave of happy feelings. All those years living at the commune, she'd seen the effects of bond conditions on others and had heard people talk about them. Ignacio had explained all the mechanics to her. And now she was feeling it herself. Jin sighed. Well, what do we do? You could try a pseudonym, but long term that weakens our position. Trying to be anonymous makes us look like cowards and terrorists. Can you do anything to break the bond? Not easily. He's in Prometheus. Jin cursed as the color drained out of his face. He turned to look into the restaurant. I mean, Nathan may be able to help you, but he's off on one of his information-gathering quests. Last I tried to contact him, his watch was unlisted. Probably means he's off-world, and I don't know if he'd be able to smuggle you to Prometheus and back without getting caught. Moving a Pravid might trip some alarm or... Who knows what? Aramis took a deep breath. She felt a little better as she let it out. There is one way. It was my plan B for when I was figuring out how to smuggle people into hail. Ironically enough, it puts me in extreme danger, but weirdly I think that I can squeeze through a loophole in his condition. Jin lifted his chin as he studied Aramis a moment. What exactly are you going to do? Well... It hardly involves going swimming. <laughs>